When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello there and welcome to the Mary Rose. <laughs> and Dorman already has his head in his hands because we have got alcohol. We are bored out of our minds. And it's Paddy's Day! Yay! I think, Dorman, are you, have you just like died or are you out yep. there? Hello yep. there! Oh dear God. Top of the morning to ya! Right, that's all the Irish <laughs> I can do. I'm done. I'm done, I promise. Are you there? <laughs> <laughs> oh fucking hell! Sorry, I needed a moment to process that. Um, this is <laughs> Dorman. We've done this just for you. Yeah, for you yeah. out of nothing but love. We have decided to do a down the pub special and debate Ireland's greatest ever moment. Are you excited? I have never been more excited to defend the honour of my country from what can only be described as the next two hours of racism. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, if there wasn't some sadistic twist to it, it wouldn't be us, would it? So we're no. going to let you judge tonight with Princess, who's like the least Irish person you've ever met in your life. You are right, Princess? Yeah, I'm good. I, I'm not quite sure where the Irish bashing, like, rumours come from. I, I quite like Ireland. I think it's just the fact that I am very cynical about everybody in our lovely group. And uh, Dorman knows that I really love him, really. We bond over the mutual hatred of Cromwell and some really shit British officers because we're cool people like that. Um, there was a, a reason but, that there was uh, Brian. But he still hasn't eaten all those chilli nuts, so he, he's pretty weak in South at the moment. True. Yeah, I think I think his colon's still battered. Um, I'm not doing any. I'm not doing any Irish accents tonight because you know you just never know who's going to be listening. So it's best to to be sure to be sure. Well, Holmes isn't in the house, which means that I'm kind of more cavalier with regard to rights and stuff. Um, so I feel feel free to interject anything like this at any point. As a judge, I will be highly critical of any of that nonsense. Um, <laughs> accents will be... Wouldn't be complete if someone wasn't going to quote Titanic out as Chris. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing all right, but uh, you want to go to a real party? <laughs> <laughs> it would have been so much more enticing if Leonardo DiCaprio had said it that way. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Amateur yeah, no, I'm, that he is. Uh, so how do you feel knowing that your daughter's more successful than you've ever been on this podcast? Well, I, I kind of knew it was going to happen. She, she's a genius. 
Um, and she, te- Sorry, she, she tells me regularly. Yeah. Um, Ollie um, had a part in it as well. But, oh, uh, did he? Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, he, he had one line or two lines, but uh, Sophie stole the show, which is pretty much usual for her. It was outstanding. She's uh, Beth's new bestie. How you doing, Beth? I'm good. I have. I'm embracing this, all of the Irishness. Uh, I found my only piece of green clothing, um, which green for Dorman and the fact that it's a dress so that Marcus is happy because the knees are out. <laughs> yeah, Marcus, Marcus is, is, is easily pleased. He's rocked up in his tweed coat tonight. Uh, we've been joking about how Marcus is the only person we've ever met that's sprinting for middle age for all he's worth because he's so desperate to get there, aren't you, Princess? Tweed coat and green chinos, just to nod to our Irish friends as well. Oh dear, this is, Dorman's just like, what am I letting myself in for? I mean, if not, I do actually have a rainbow of chinos. I can do any colour that you request. I don't doubt it. Lockie is drinking Guinness. Yep, I've got another can in the fridge as well. Uh, And then I'm on to... um, Something else. We we inherited a lot of booze uh, in in the week, um, including two massive bottles of rum, two big bottles of whiskey, and a one point five litre bottle of Martini Rosso. So uh, oh, I'm his developing a love. Stash. Yeah, it is. Oh, so um, he was beating on the Martini Rosso. What a dude! I, or not, or just keeping a bottle of it stashed away. I, I've never seen such a big rum stash since Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean, to be honest. Just like, in case he stumbled into a time warp and went back to 1975, <laughs> where drinking Martini Rosso was fashionable. Something like that. Yeah. Bless um, him. So Negronis for for the remainder of the evening. It'll be. Oh, didn't you? Did you not order some Guinness that was extra pungent? Is that you? Oh some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I got I got some of the Nigerian Guinness, which is good. Um, the the foreign extra stuff, seven and a half percent, punchy punchy. This is the this is the weak um, Dublin brewed uh, standard <laughs> stuff, really. But um, still, <laughs> what do they know in Ireland about brewing Guinness? <laughs> Lucky, do you know the proper Guinness can pouring technique? Uh, it's throw it in the bin and never speak of it again, isn't it? The tinned Guinness. Yeah. But if you are saddled with one, you're supposed to dump the can into the glass and then gently. Oh, okay. And that right. He's so going to give that a go before this podcast is over. We also have Clive O'Connell with us. Clive, are you actually Irish? I think on all sides, my grand, apart no, one of my grandparents was English, but the rest all came from Irish extraction. But unfortunately. They all they all came over at great grandparent stages, not at grandparent stages. So I can't get an EU passport. Which is a bummer. <laughs> First world problems, Clive. First world problems. So I've had to put up with having an Irish name in the seventies and all the racial abuse that that came with that. But I don't get the passport. I mean, it's not fair. First world problems, Clive. Okay, we also have Alina. You write novels. Um, I'm not Polish. I don't know. Should I play my English card here or my Polish card here? I don't know. Decisions, You've got so many passports decisions. that everyone's got you marked down as a terrorist. So <laughs> you've got a like a collection or a of half a dozen. A spy sounds cooler. All right, spy terrorist. I'm a spy. I'm gonna come with spy. Potato, terrorist sounds a bit like. <laughs> We've also got Kate with us in Spain. Hello. I'm sorry, I mentioned potatoes to a Polish person. Now she's going to lecture me on how their potatoes are superior. <laughs> you can't mention potatoes to anyone from Poland without them telling you that Polish potatoes are nicer than English potatoes. Irish potatoes are better. 
I mean, it's half true. My grandfather helped uh, make the potato vodka in uh, Cycle of Three, so they're acceptable. I do have to say, though, that having driven 150 miles out of my way to say that I had ticked Idaho off my list of states and eaten Idaho potato uh, in the form of French fries, it tasted like every other potato, and it was very disappointing. Sorry, Idaho. Um, we So you heard an American voice, X. We do have an American voice. We have one of our listeners with us today. We have Heather with us, who's always about on Facebook, and we love her. You all right, Heather? I'm fantastic. Thanks fits right in with this group because we've already discussed uh, how to dispose of uh, bodies of people we don't like before we came on air uh, and she's a microbiologist and was quite willing to help us uh, so she's going to fit right in in this lunatic crowd you're in Ohio aren't you yes what are the potatoes like in Ohio um right now very cold and snow covered Ooh, no we don't fancy that much uh we also is um I'm hoping Kate isn't cold and snow covered because she's in spain kate no no the rain stopped for um, about three days and now it's pissing down again (laughs) brilliant i love that you've changed your uh screenshot on here to a meme of sean bean that says one does simply one does not simply eat one piece of bacon yeah i always try to keep my my pictures uh topic appropriate so that's a little clue Mm, right, I'm very excited to hear that. And who else have we got? We've got Zach. You're all right, mate. How you doing? So your speciality is discipline in the British Army in the Napoleonic periods. You spend a lot of time reading about Irish people, don't you? Yeah, and how they were all just a bunch of drunken layabouts who got flogged <laughs> half the time. So so <laughs> genuinely, that is the, the national stereotype. So um, good luck, oh. Dorman. What's brilliant is that Dorman's frowning, but Zach's got like years of statistical research. Unfortunately, they all back this up. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Years of statistical research, but it's currently on minus five points. Dorman's just texted me. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, funny that. But you started. And it hasn't gone points. unnoticed as well that Clive has turned his porno lighting green tonight. Well done, Clive. Earning bonus points already. Right. Okay. God, where are we going to start? Should we start with someone? I'm going to start with someone that's probably taken it semi-seriously because I suspect some people haven't in this. Uh, let, I don't want to make Heather go first on her first go. Um, let's go with Clive first. Oh no. Okay. Are they going to have Cockney accents? I'm afraid not. I'm afraid I've got no accents in this. I was tempted to do the whole thing with an Irish accent, but I just felt a little bit sorry for Dorman and I thought that might just get me killed. <laughs> you got five minutes to get out, you know, that type of call. Or call ahead at least. Tonight I want to talk about Ireland releasing itself from the shackles of oppression. But not as you might imagine from the shackles of English oppression, but of oppression of a different sort. Ireland's history is, whichever way one looks at it, intertwined with religion. And yet today Ireland is a modern secular country. I'm proposing as the greatest event in Irish history, the uncoupling of Ireland from the Catholic Church, an uncoupling which has, in my ever humble opinion, left both institutions the stronger for it. Now, I'm not going to spend the next five minutes talking about Father Ted, nor will I I attempt any musical Irish accents. I will, however, begin with a one or maybe five minute encapsulation of the history of the Irish Church. St. Patrick came to Ireland and converted the hitherto pagan people to the Catholic faith. Over time, the, the Celtic, 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 
Celtic church went out on its own. So much so that when St. Cuthbert and his chums started the re-Christianization of England from the north and their Celtic ways clashed with the Roman ways of St. Augustine of Canterbury and his conversion from the south, the matter had to be resolved by the king at the Synod of Whitby. It took a little longer for this issue to be resolved in Ireland, and it wasn't until after the visit of the Normans and the start of the 800 years of English oppression that the Irish church wedded itself once more to Rome. The Reformation hit Ireland. Henry VIII started, as he had in England, by dissolving the monasteries. The difference was that there were many more monasteries in Ireland, and they were hugely popular. The English, however, were not. Still, Henry went ahead with his land grab and sowed the seeds of enhanced oppression. All but two of the Irish bishops converted and the Church of Ireland was born. Persecution occurred within the Pale. St. Oliver Plunkett later got canonised for that. That said, the Church of Ireland was not hugely popular outside the Pale and outside the Squirearchy. Most people continued with their faith as before. The struggle for Irish independence began in earnest with Wolf Tone, a Protestant. His United Irishmen were united as Irishmen irrespective of their religion. The English realised that if they were to rule Ireland, dividing and conquering was the way to go. And in the 19th century, the cause of Irish independence was almost always a Catholic cause. Creating national pride relied upon three elements that separated the Irish from the rest. Language, sport and religion. And Catholicism became an emblem of Ireland's struggle for independence. It also allowed the Irish to garner support from abroad. Catholic emancipation was won and the famine, and then the famine happened. The English gave aid conditional on conversion to the Church of Ireland. This worked in some cases, but by the time of independence, all but 7% of the population of the Republic were Catholic a figure that fell to four, to down to 4% shortly afterwards. In the 1870s, the Church of Ireland ceased to be the established church in Ireland. And then, as I said, Ireland got its independence. Although the earliest free state constitutions were largely secular, by 1937 and 38, De Valera's Constitution of the Republic recognised Catholicism as the majority religion and gave it an undefined special status. Whereas in the US there is constitutional separation between church and state, England has a church that is under the control of the state, Ireland opted for another course. It could be said that Ireland had a state under the control of the church. The constitution protected many of the church's priorities, no divorce, no homosexuality, no abortion. The way that the church operated in Ireland was all pervasive hospitals, schools, the Ministry of Agriculture making announcements read out in the pulpit. I remember as a kid going on holiday to Ireland in the 1970s. It was a great contrast to England at that time. The Angelus bells would ring and everybody would stop still in the fields and pray for a while. One didn't dare venture out during Holy Week for fear of being seen and press to another three-hour service in the church. At the beach, Every car seemed to have a nun in it. When on the Late Late Show, Gabriel Byrne asked newlywed couple questions along the line of Mr. and Mrs., you know, he asked the same question to each and compares the answers. He asked the young wife what she wore in bed. 
And when she replied, nothing, a bishop called for a national boycott of all of RTE's programs. But there was worse. The Magdalene laundries in which young pregnant women were hidden away to atone for their sins and have their children snatched from them, many sent to Australia as, as not virtual slaves, as actual slaves. Well, of course, the all-pervasive child abuse, abuse so bad yet never investigated because of the power and influence of the church. And then, not overnight, not in a Pauline Damascan conversion, but over a few years, it changed. And the change can be observed through referenda. The Irish know how to run a referendum, unlike the English. In 1972, in a referendum, the church's special status went, but its influence continued. In 1986 and again in 20, um, 2019, divorce was permitted and the ability to divorce extended. In 2015, same-sex marriage came in and then in 2018, abortion. Ireland had changed. No longer a priest-ridden society, it is now a modern dynamic European nation. Yes, the church has influence in society, but it is much reduced and not ingrained in the constitution. And for this, Ireland is better and so is the church. The church in Ireland was strongest when it was at odds with authority, and at its worst when it was authority. Today it is neither, and probably the better for it. I'm Clive, for starting us off sensibly. I can't play my fiddle-dee-dee music because it's inappropriate, mm. because that was actually a really good pitch. Uh, and Dorman, what did you make of it? Yeah, starting very strong. Um, the, if I could do offer one historical note, uh, Patrick was not the first bishop in Ireland. It was a chap called Palladius. Patrick just was the fancier choice. Wikipedia um, giving actually. it wrong again. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fine. Uh, but yeah, no, you've you emphasized something there that people do not realize, or really they they do realize, but they don't process how unbelievably Catholic Catholic this country was and how pervasive it was and how it was everything. I mean, our national news program, even today, still pauses at six o'clock to ring out the Angelus. Um, and obviously, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of reforms recently, all of which are, you know, progress and positive, but there's still issues. The Magdalene Laundry scandal, which came to the fore recently with the um, deaths of hundreds of infants, which nobody really apologized for. Um, and even recently there was an RTE ran something it was a comedy skit about uh, of how god uh, was accused of sexual deviance and this was like the most complained thing in uh, RTE's history recently so it's still around but progress is being made if i could offer an anal criticism though clive uh, you're picking a moment in irish history and you've gone for a century of change so. Well, I'm not not quite a century of change. I've kind of cut, cut it down. It's really more into the kind of 2015 to 2018 era. Fair, fair. Okay, in that case, fair enough. But uh, you and when we're talking about we're talking about 1500 years of history, I think you know, <laughs> give me three years as a moment. Fine, fine. Well, that's me, Marcus. Yeah, I mean, Clive has always been a very, very strong game. Uh, wouldn't expect anything else, but it was, it was very good. Uh, yeah, that was my main note, actually, that I made was what was the moment. So the last three years, it's very good. I don't have a, a detailed knowledge of the Irish church, as uh, Ireland's fa- fa- famous export says. You know, that would be an ecumenical matter. Um, so I can't go too far uh, into it. But, yeah, reforms of 
people's social and religious uh, lives into a 21st century kind of liberal society is a good thing. So, yeah, it's, yeah, points all round. I mean, slightly disappointed still that we didn't get an Irish accent. We got a Dorset accent last week, but I'm going to let him off on that, on the, like, kind of borderline racial hatred that they've had for a few hundred years. So um, when Dorset's oppressed again, then we'll come back to it. Unless uh, Clive wants to quickly shove in an Irish accent now to try and up his game with Mark. I'd be sure I wouldn't be doing that now, would I? <laughs> oh, Alexa was not impressed by that. You were complaining. It's a really mixed bag. <laughs> That's Sorry, creepy. That Clive did that and remember. Alexa kicked off in my front room, um, which is a bit disturbing. Did it go green? She had, she is flashing green. I'm, I'm not sure what she wants. <laughs> you know the trick when you're on a very serious call? On Zoom, you just make it, make some announcement like Alexa play and then come out with some ridiculous tune like Alexa play the birdie song. She's waiting. Oh. <laughs> and then you get Alexa she, here playing you go. the birdie song in everyone's office. Alexa, Alexa shut up. <laughs> oh, we've got a new game. Nicely played. She's <laughs> still going. Alexa, shut up. Alexa play Irish folk music. Still going with the oh, you <laughs> Alexa, shut up. She's not listening. This one only got plugged in today. It's the fourth oh, generation. Oh, I'm just going to go and pull the plug out because I think I will die if I have to listen to the whole of the birdie song. I think for Alexa's Athenian. Yeah. <laughs> really, we actually have a playlist of favourite Irish folk music, so, you know, it's not great in my house. Like when this goes out, if people have got Alexas on in their room, there's going to be Alexa switched on across the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Playing the birdie song, which, uh, five seconds of that was enough to make me want to cry. Anyway, uh, Clive has just killed his street cred by going for the birdie song as the coolest song he could think of. Uh, let's go to, Let's do Alina. Alina, you said you're one short. Is this because you found it really difficult to shoehorn Poland into a story about Ireland's greatness? Why do you do this every time I fucking eat? I'd, well, if you do sit there <laughs> munching for the whole of down the pub, then... No, I just made myself some soup. That's why I'm on, and nobody can see me on the camera because I'm eating soup. So yes, you always, I, I don't know what you've got sort of like thing that every time I put a bowl of food on my dinner in front of me, it's like, Elena. Or I wait for you to turn the camera off. Idiot. Or, <laughs> having a nine course dinner in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that might be why I'm so fat. But anyway, moving on. Bye. Dorman, today I'm going to play the Polish card. Dorman, I would like you to realise and understand how much Polish history is intertwined with Irish history. Okay, we are so intertwined. It can be traced back 7,000 years because there were Celtic tribes in Ireland that inhabited lands in Poland. Um, For example, modern Silesia is one of them. In the Holy Cross Mountains, so Świętokrzyskie, oh my God, can't I speak my own language today? Świętokrzyskie Mountains, there are Celtic ironworks. There are rivers, villages that hold original roots, original Irish roots. For example, the town of Lignica is the Celtic word for fortress, apparently. So Dorman, you could probably tell me if I'm wrong there, but apparently so. I don't know. I've probably said it in a Polish way. 
and you're looking at me like I'm insane. So I've said it in a completely no. Dormant's looking at you like that because he can't speak Gaelic to save his life. Is that right? It's Faderlum. If you type it, I'll try and pronounce it. I will type it in the chat in just a moment. Anyway, so we share so many similarities, Poland and Ireland. Obviously, the religious side. We're also very oppressed and bullied by our neighbours. And you've got to remember, the Polish partition was not viewed very well by the Irish. The Irish supported a free Poland, unlike many other countries. But I'm going to bring your attention to one specific man, Bernard Connor. You're probably thinking, who is this man? Where does he come into this story? Bernard Connor, for example, was born in County Kerry in 1666, which was the Great Fire of London, I think. I don't know. I'm not very good at the time period. But anyway, moving on, he studied medicine. He became a distinguished physician, anatomist and chemist. When he was in Ireland, he met the sons of Jan Wielkopolski. Jan Wielkopolski was a Polish nobleman, aristocrat, politician, diplomat and chancellor. His sons were there in Ireland and they decided to head home. So Connor decided to tag along. They went to Venice, Padarova, Bavaria, Vienna, and then they stayed at the court of Leopold I, the Holy Roman Emperor. Then he went through Moravia, Silesia, Kraków, finally to Warszawa. And he was at the court of Jan Sobieski III. Jan Sobieski III was the ruler at the time. He is known for the Battle of Vienna in 1683. He was the defender of Europe. He defeated the Ottomans. But this is not about Polish history. We're going back to Irish history now. Sobolewski appointed Connor, that's his name, <laughs> to his court. Why? Because I'm, I'm rattling on about Polish history. He appointed it to his court. Why? Because he was such a good diagnostician. I mean, this guy was so, so good at what he did that not even the Polish physicians, okay, could correctly diagnose Sobieski's sister. They kept saying he had mal- she had malaria. No, she did not because... Connor diagnosed her with an abscess on the liver. Very smart man. In 1694, he was appointed to attend Sobieski's only daughter, Teresa Sobieska. She was meant to marry Maximilian II, Emmanuel Elector of Bavaria and Brussels. Jesus Christ, that's long. Um, so the, the, the Bavarian dude, he accompanied and then ended up in England. But what did he do? In 1698, he published a book called the history of Poland, and a lot of historians use this book nowadays to talk about what Poland was like in the time period. They also, he talks about Lech Czech and Rus, which is a legend of Poland, how Poland was created. So my point is, Poland and Ireland had this beautiful relationship, and it still does to this day, and that Connor was this amazing Irishman who discovered Poland and opened it up to the world. That's Irish, Ireland's greatest moment. Thank you very much. Is it really though? No, it's, it's not. Very I well done. <laughs> I know you. Is it really just the only one you could find that involved Poland? Firstly, yes, and second, <laughs> uh, I wanted to piss some people off, so I'm hoping I kind of did that too. And I actually did my prep work for this one, so you've got to give me some points for that. I do. We do have to give you points for that because you have actually you clearly, and I think you had to dive beyond Wikipedia because you tried Wikipedia and there wasn't anything on it. No, I tried to find the book as well, because apparently it's meant to be really, really, really well written. But one day, if somebody out there is listening has got a copy, please uh, please let me know, because I'd love to read it. 
Okay, you can go back to your suit. Let's find out if Dorman thinks that that is the best moment in Irish history. I'm not even sure that's the best moment in Polish Irish history. <laughs> you know, the person who carried Jan Sobieski's flag at the Battle of Vienna was Irish. No, I didn't even know that. There you go. That's how shit my research was. <laughs> is that I mean, what you were anticipating her saying, Dorman? Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I know where this is going. Cool, cool. Oh, this no, guy I oh. thought was much cooler than the flag bearer. I mean, he was this amazing diagnostician and he wrote a beautiful book on Poland, which is far better than carrying a stupid flag. That is true. That is true. When, when rates of Polish history versus saving Europe. Um, you know, <laughs> we know where we lie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I thought it was pretty good, to be honest. Um, I always appreciate the medical stuff thrown in and obviously we're good at that kind of thing. We've got lots of history of doctors traveling and Irish connections with Europe. So yeah, it wasn't bad, but I liked it. I yeah. It is surprisingly uh, well thought out. Uh, what you want to say is for Alina. No, well done, Alina. That was really good. You can go back to your soup. Thank what you. What soup is it? Is it potato um, soup? Please tell me it's potato soup. <laughs> I can't eat potatoes, unfortunately. Uh, no, it is. Um, oh my God. My language has gone out the window. Um, ca- Cauliflower. Are you even Polish? Is this all just some elaborate lie? Do you know what it is? I've been living in this country too long and my language is merging and it's really bad. I forget my own English language. Oh dear. It's not going to end well, is it? Marcus, what did you make of that one? Yeah, I mean, history's most beige Polish moment in history. Um, yeah, it just didn't... Just didn't have a zing to it. I kept waiting for something to like pop out and happen. Um, he, he diagnosed a liver I've got. Um, that was great. And, uh, he was, he was Polish, which I mean, I, I, I want to kind of slate, but I know that I'd only ever do a Napoleonic one. So that's fine. Uh, and then I've just got lots of jokes with Dorman about builders, the Irish ones, then being replaced by the Polish ones, go back to the Irish ones again. Um, and then we just kind of descended into that. So I think, I think I did an Alina and stopped listening. So maybe now, maybe now I'll go and eat some food. Harsh, harsh, but maybe fair. Uh, okay. So if that one hasn't turned you on, uh, let's see if we can find someone who will. I'm conscious if I said, uh, that Kate can go later this week because she always seems to go near the beginning, uh, and then everyone forgets her. Let's do, let's do Beth. No, no, no. Beth's got to go later because Beth's got to go after me. Let's do Zach. I am unashamedly and shallowly chasing the wind tonight in possibly the most manipulative way possible. So sit back and watch as I shatter the sort of tentative dormant crib truce and pick something that Marcus cannot possibly argue with. Yes, I am arguing that Ireland's greatest moment came in May 1769 with the birth of Sir Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington. Yeah, so thanks very much for everyone coming. That's History Hack. Do- uh, Zach- <laughs> and uh, we're done. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. You know, the next line in my notes was, as far as Princess is concerned, I've won already. <laughs> and the reason for that is that he knows full well that I will never let him live it down um, in terms of his kind of reputation as a champion of Wellington if he doesn't declare this as the best Irish moment ever. So that just leaves me with Dorman and our lovely listeners to convince. I'm not going to give you a long commentary on what Wellington did and when, because you've heard it all from Marcus already. 
And if you haven't, then you need to turn tune into uh, Sharpshooters here on History Hack every second Thursday of the month. And yes, that is a shameless plug. And no, I'm not sorry. In a nutshell, though, Wellington was one off, if not the best commander that Britain has ever produced. Never lost a pitch battle, consistently beating the French, despite often being outnumbered, evicting them from Portugal and Spain, and then finally seeing off Napoleon's invasion of Belgium at Waterloo with a coalition force in 1815. He then went on to have a fairly successful career as a diplomat and a less successful career as prime minister. Now, it's commonly said that Wellington, when asked about his Irish heritage, remarked that being born in a stable didn't make a man a horse. But there's a problem. There's no contemporary evidence of him saying that. Instead, it was actually said by Daniel O'Connell of the Duke. And I'm not going to attempt the Irish accent here because I want to win and don't want to be accused of a hate crime. But this is the direct quote. The poor old Duke, what I shall say of him. To be sure, he was born in Ireland, but being born in a stable does not make a man a horse. O'Connell might have wanted to callously reject the Duke's Irishness, but to adapt a phrase from Python, what did Wellington ever do for the Irish? Wellington is known for his skill as a commander throughout the Napoleonic Wars. As the man who consistently beat the French on the battlefield, he ensured that the Irish warriors under his command bear in mind a third of his army was always Irish, got their revenge on the French for being such useless allies to the cause of Irish independence. After all, as a certain Andrew Dorman has philosophied, being allied to the French is like bringing a dildo to a knife fight. Frankly, (laughs) one of the best punchlines to grace stand-up comedy, not least because it's basically true. In 1798, when Ireland rose in rebellion against British rule, the French were conspicuous for failing to support their Irish allies. Why? Well, most of France's troops had been sent to support Napoleon's scheme of invading Egypt. So you could argue that the failure of the Irish cause was partly Napoleon's fault. I can see Marcus is convinced already. And that Wellington, by defeating Napoleon at Waterloo, righted a wrong. Tenuous, maybe, but to be quite honest with you, I've heard people make more ridiculous suggestions on some documentaries that have aired on TV. So again, I'm not sorry. So as an ambassador for Ireland, Wellington was a good thing. Ireland was able to demonstrate how much it was contributing to the welfare of the United Kingdom, and Wellington's victories helped to bind the Union together, ensuring that the achievements of troops from all four nations of the Union were appreciated and respected. Ireland was finally receiving some recognition that had long been seeking. But the most important factor for Ireland was actually what Wellington did as Prime Minister. As listeners of sharpshooters will know, I'm no fan of Wellington's career after Waterloo and think he was a disappointing PM. But the one thing that nobody can take away from him is Catholic emancipation. As part of the legacies of the English Civil War and glorious revolution of the 17th century, Catholics were essentially second class citizens in the UK in the early 19th century. The Catholic Emancipation Act, co-drafted by Wellington and in which he was heavily involved in crafting, brought that to an end. Admittedly, Wellington had initially opposed the idea, as had Robert Peel, but both changed their minds. The Act permitted Catholics to be elected to Parliament, finally opening up the chance for them to hold public office, representing Catholic perspectives and the plight of Catholics for the first time. Ireland, though split in terms of religion, had a large Catholic population, and so directly benefited from that. Ireland was given a voice by Wellington's ministry. All political movements need a moment of genesis, a gust of air to allow the spark to ignite. Catholic emancipation made it possible for pro-independence Catholic politicians to stand for election. 
fanning the flames of their cause. So a prominent ambassador of Ireland, highlighting the contribution that the country was making to the welfare of the Union, an individual whose victories would help cement the Union and ensure that Ireland began to command respect from all corners of the UK. A homegrown, sort of, Irish lad, rising to be the most senior politician in the British government, and the man who ended the suppression of the Catholics. Surely the birth of the man who did all of this, and went on to become Marcus's hero, is the greatest moment in Irish history. You know what I love about you, Zach? You're shameless, because that whole thing about callously denying the Irishness of Wellington, I've heard you do that like a dozen times in claiming that he was completely English. Uh, he but, was a snob, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> I love, I love but the one side. you sell out for a victory on these. It's brilliant. It's nearly as shameless as Beth clawing her way uh, towards another podium finish. Let's go to Marcus first, because this is his his baby. Marcus, convinced? I mean, absolutely. I did say earlier there was a winning moment. It wasn't actually this, so I doubt it's going to come up. Um, yeah, also really nicely to dispel the Irishman in the stables quote, which is overly quoted, and many people tell me, oh, the only thing I know about Wellington is that he said he was, wasn't born in the stables. Da, da, da. Um, yeah, so really nice to actually get some good history in there. Uh, yeah, I would actually over... I think Zach actually like, underplayed um, the, the Irish armies, like... Um, contribution, uh, the number of Irish regiments uh, within Wellington's army, including Sergeant Marston, who got the first eagle in the peninsula. Um, there's a lot of connections, and Catholic emancipation is vastly underrated. Um, there's a lot of people who are basically Catholic today in uh, England or in Britain uh, who are able to have some of the rights to vote and own property and stand for office uh, that is directly related to Wellington. So uh, unsurprising, I'm a bit of a fan of that one. Dorman does not look happy. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, let's see if Dorman is as convinced by this. Dorman? I have questions. Um, I'm not just going to say Wellington was a West Brit and leave it at that, but um, does Wellington ever actually, you know, say at all that he is doing these things for Ireland? Not as such, no. Well, they do attribute, major historians like Romeo do attribute the fact of Catholic emancipation due to his connections and friends, so... Okay, fair enough. But if we're talking about Catholic emancipation, Daniel O'Connell is the man to acknowledge. And surely Catholic emancipation is just granted because O'Connell gets himself elected in County Clare and Wellington shits himself because it's a loophole. (laughs) That that might be a a powerful argument. Like I, I can't argue with any prime the man knows his happened. Irish history and he knows that I know that he's right, so I, I can't really argue against him, can I? But I just feel that any prime minister in any position would have done the same, and I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's like, that's I, fair. I, I take the army side of things for sure, and you know, maybe he was giving back, or at least that's the official line. But I do feel that if you're going to talk about Catholic emancipation, why Wellington and why not O'Connell? Well, uh, definitely O'Connell, it, uh, but it I took think. Wellington to say yes. Supposing that, and, and in, in genuine fairness to Wellington here, if I'm just serious for half a second, the the king did consider refusing to sign the Catholic Emancipation Bill, and Wellington said, if you do that, I'm going to resign. So Wellington was prepared to put his foot down for the cause. You're quite right. It was O'Connell's election that kick-started all of this, and initially Wellington wasn't up for it. 
neither was Peel. But when you look at the the draft of the bill, which I've seen, it's um, in Southampton University Library, um, you can see that Wellington has gone through Peel's initial suggestions and there are bits crossed out where he said, no, that's not going to work. We need to frame it this way. So Wellington was very heavily involved in the realisation of that. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. And the only other thing I would ask is just a genuine question. Um, does Wellington comment at all on the Act of Union? Do you know at all if he... Not to my, I, I don't know, is the honest answer. Um, he was very heavily involved, um, working with the chief secretary in his early career. So he was kind of heavily involved in the Irish government early on in his life. Um, ended up dividing his, his early days between working as, I think it was ADC. Marcus will be able to correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, thank you. ADC to the Lord Lieutenant. Um, but no, I don't know of any direct comments on the Act of Union. But he's out in India at that point, so he's not really involved in the conversations. And Zach, you forgot all the stuff he did after Waterloo about pay, uh, being the patron of many Irish charities in London. Wink. Yeah, that. Thanks, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I sense a conspiracy going on here. Uh, I quite like that one. Dorman, are you done grilling him? Yeah, I'm good. Right, okay. Let's stop and get another drink and then we'll come back. We'll come back with Heather next because I want to hear what she's got to say. Okay, if you'd have been with us during the break, you would have uh, seen Dorman doing a Jedward impression with his lockdown hair, which was quite amusing, uh, while Marcus cried because his hair isn't long enough to do a Jedward impression. Uh, what else would you have seen? Uh, or you would have seen Clive get all up in Zach's face when uh, Zach mocked Jedward because Clive is apparently a fan and Clive and Heather are going to go hang out and watch Jedward when lockdown is over. Brilliant. Absolutely. Speaking of, let's go to Heather. Uh, are you terrified yet, having spent nearly an hour in a room with these people? No, not at all. You just feel at home? Pretty much, yes. Yes, Excellent. very much, actually. So are you you do have Irish heritage. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure even if you didn't, you would claim it because you're American uh, and that happens a lot. Do you know what we were discussing, which was hilarious? It's if you ask an Irish person who the greatest hero in Irish history was, it would be a completely different answer to Americans who would say Michael Flatley or Bono. Would Irish people say that, Dorman? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what do Irish people think of Bono and Michael Flatley? Uh, Bono is a sunglass-wearing twat and... Michael Flatley is not much better. Excellent. Uh, Heather, what have you gone for in terms of Ireland's greatest moment in history? I went for March 9th, 1932, which was when they had the first governmental change in the Irish Free State. Ah, so Dorman's actually like mesmerized that someone's actually taken something seriously. Uh, and I sense very interested in hearing what you've got to say. Okay. Um, I apologize in advance. I am going to absolutely butcher most of these pronunciations. I am very, very sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Just thought I'd say that first. Okay, so first I thought I'd provide a little backstory. So the current government before 1932 was the Covenant Nile, who were from the pro-treaty side of the Civil War and very conservative. They decided to loosely model the government of the Irish Free State on the British government, thus making making the first government a parliament-like setup called the Erectus, which had two chambers, the lower house or Doyle and the Senate or Shannad. The members of the Senate would serve for three years and the elections of those members would be staggered. 
all members of the lower house and the Senate would have to swear an oath of loyalty to the Constitution and the British monarchy. The British monarchy had a representative called the, go the Governor General, who, although mostly a ceremonial position, looked after British interests in the Irish Free State. There was an executive council with an elected president who had the help of 11 aides who each had their own department. A Supreme Court was added, although the highest court in the land was still seen as the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London. Along with changes in the government, they decided to reduce the army as they had around 60,000 men and it was deemed way too large for peacetime. So the two, two platforms were the Covenant Nile and the Fianna Foil, and they each had different platforms. So for the Covenant Niles platform, they had basically just the fact that they had provided stability after the Civil War for the last 10 years, and they decided to run with that. Um, unfortunately, uh, they hadn't really done anything to reverse the collapse in trade following the uh, depression in the early 1930s and the push for revival of the Irish language through making the requirement for schools um, failed rather spectacularly. They used scaremongering tactics and compared De La Vera to Stalin and tried to incite a red scare by depicting the men of the Fianna Fáil as communists. Well, the Fianna Fáils were the opponents and they had mostly been the enemies of the Communal Nile um, right after the war. The platform for the Fianna Foil was social economic reform, which was the discontinuation of land annuities of which the money received from those was still sent to London, protectionism in the form of a tariff system to protect Ireland's industries and improving its social security payments. Running on this platform is what won the Fianna Foil's 1932 election. So once they won, there was a large concern um, between um, many people and the incoming members of the Fianna Foil. They were worried that the transfer of power might not be peaceful and that the previous um, government would not surrender peacefully. Some of the newcoming members of the Fianna Foil would actually arrive armed with concealed weapons. Thankfully, the transfer of power happened peacefully with the army the uh, police force and the civil service accepting the change. So this proved that peaceful transition between opposing sides who 10 years prior had been at civil war showed that it would, there was no fear for another civil conflict and that issues could be worked out politically, diplomatically and without bloodshed. Quite unlike the recent bloodshed of the uh, last U.S. President's president, bleh, presidential election that saw the storming of the Capitol in early 2021 by American terrorists. We failed that one. So due to this, um, this change in government, this brought up, would bring about the dismantling of the treaty with Britain, the removal of the taking of the oath of allegiance, um, and an amendment to the Constitution that free state citizens could no longer contest the Irish court verdicts to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. The Governor General was essentially boycotted by Irish politicians, and that led to his recall to England. Eventually, De La Vera wrote a new Constitution and used King Edward VIII's abdication and the confusion in British politics in the aftermath in his favor. 
Delavera um, issued the Constitutional Act and the External Relations Act, which removed the king's authority in the Irish Free State and abolished the governor general position. In his place, another role called the chief steward was installed to be a figurehead to sign bills into law. This new constitution established the president as the head of state with elections held every seven years, while the head of government was titled the Taoiseach. The position of president was largely ceremonial, but he could refer legislation from the Erictus, which is the, for better word, make, make sure it was constitutional. Um, the Erictus um, was bicameral, which it had the Shannad and the Doyle until 1936, when the Shannad was abolished. Um, another new addition was that the Catholic Church was given a special position, which Clive already covered. And um, that brought about a lot of change because divorce was made unconstitutional. Um, abortion was illegal. And also um, the push for women to be in the home and, and that economic necessity shouldn't drive them from their proper place of the home. Another new part of the Constitution was that Article 2 established political jurisdiction of the whole island, while Article 3 announced that Irish laws would only apply to the 26 counties that made up Ireland until a partition with Northern Ireland came to an end, which it never really did. So I'm saying that it got the ball rolling to um, help make Ireland become its own nation, basically. Well done. Uh, that was incredibly brave. You're getting applause from around the room. Uh, incredibly brave taking on uh, Irish-British politics. And I sense it needed an American to do it because if, if the Irish or uh, British people in the room had done it, it would have ended up in a clusterfuck of abuse. Uh, but no, So and also on the pronunciation as well, because I wouldn't have touched that with a barge pole. Uh, Dorman, what do you think? Um, I'll, I'll leave the pronunciation to the end. Um, <laughs> but no, Sorry. You're fine. I've heard words. Um, this is all, this is really important stuff. I mean, this is, uh, uh, the peaceful transition of power bit cannot be understated. Um, the fact that Fianna Fáil is led by Eamon de Valera, who essentially caused the civil war in the first place and is then elected, kind of shows how far the country had come even in that short 10 year period. Uh, in terms of like long, like legacy, as you said, this is first step on road to republic. So obviously this is very important. Uh, and also it does kind of cement de Valera as this sort of in interminable leader of the country, which is kind of a problem. And also Fianna Fáil's dominance. And they're still in power today and they're making a balls of this lockdown. But I'm not going to hold that against you. That's just, <laughs> you don't know how to win an election. Um, yeah. As I said, you, you cover the background lovely, perfectly, so I, I'm content. That was really good. Outstanding. Oh, but the pronunciation. So, <laughs> <laughs> come in the nail. Oroctus. Doll. Shannon. Marcus is Sorry. completely unmoved by the uh, pronunciation tips there because he's like, meh, no one cares anyway. It's <laughs> exactly what your face says, Marcus. What do you think? I've got my local Kentish beer and I'm just quite happy about it. Um... Yeah, I mean, really strong uh, contender. Uh, it, I mean, insofar that I've actually kind of heard of some of these modules kind of beforehand. Uh, helping, I think I'm right in saying, helping bring the end to the Irish Civil War after the partition and the transition of a peaceful parliament cannot be understated. Wasn't quite sure on the Trump analogy, but we're going to kind of slightly skirt over that because we don't <laughs> orange guy anymore on our Twitter. Um, first question, I've got a few questions. Number one. Is that Mountain Dew you're drinking? 
number two. <laughs> oh, he's so yeah. jealous. Look at him. Sorry, American is awesome. Um, I didn't quite hear the negatives towards, uh, I think, women, which obviously wouldn't be a, a grand thing on um, a woman and abortion. But uh, if you can defend those, I think you're in with a very strong chance. Yeah, that's why um, she hands over to Clive. <laughs> that one's Clive's problem. I think, if I may, Heather, uh, that is so much down to the church's influence and the fact that De Valera was terrified of the church. Um, handing over all of that power, all that control. Um, the figurehead you need to look at is Archbishop Charles McQuaid and his influence on the 20th century in Ireland. And he is responsible for so much of the negativity. But uh, yeah, that's just me stepping into defense of someone I'm now very fond of. Thank you, Heather. <laughs> no, I think as well, that the point that Heather's given us like, as the greatest moment, the first point on the path to being a republic, um, but getting it, trying to pull it out of nowhere and like pull that out of your ass and get it all perfect first time um, without a sort of evolution towards treating everybody as they should be treated is probably, um, it's not realistic to expect it to all be bang on from the very beginning, is it? No, and it's, it's a great stepping stone to put it towards, you know, they, they put a lot of reforms in there and really moved it to be an Irish free state as opposed to being kind of like an autonomous puppet state uh, under Britain, let's say, removing some of the uh, oaths and some of the rights that were kind of formed from Britain and being completely independent and even putting the names in. So, yeah, uh, really interesting one to actually have, not one I kind of expected, but it's really important in our history. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's great. I think the... Um what's muted is how to do it in 1914 when they're all arguing before the first world war comes and takes over um someone says that the power that they are looking at giving the irish parliament um if it exists is about the same as what you'd give to a county council in england so that was what they were offered and that's how far they'd come by 1923 so i think that's a really good shout well done heather uh that's a great first time one uh let's who else have we got i'm gonna i'm gonna go to chris because i have no idea what chris is gonna do i don't know if he sort of um, told the group yeah my, on whatsapp and i missed it or what yeah my, mine mine's a bit bit abstract um uh, <laughs> i think i'm heading for a, a bronze medal finish but um i'm gonna, I'm gonna mention the potato famine uh, or the great famine the uh great <laughs> hunger uh, the famine the irish holocaust or the Irish potato famine, or as we in England like to refer to it as the middle of the 19th century, nothing to see here, please move on, the Zulus are coming. <laughs> uh, um, in brief, uh, this was caused by a, a potato... <laughs> um, this was caused by a potato blight, which uh, affected um, the whole of Europe. And like the current pandemic, uh, claimed hundreds of thousands of lives in Europe, including 42,000 Prussians and uh, 10,000 French and uh, my attempt at accents, and um, also struck the Scottish Highlands. In Ireland, it was worse, so much worse, with uh, 20 to 25% of the population falling. Uh, 2.1 million people immigrated, and another 1 million were projected to have died, in, um, as the potato was the uh, staple food of uh, many, many people across Europe, but especially in Ireland. Um, successive British governments failed uh, to tackle uh, this issue, including um, finding uh, my handwriting is awful. Uh, different <laughs> measures uh, to, to replicate the measures of 1780, uh, which um, 
when it happened, when we had a, a famine in Ireland, then we, uh, the English, uh, stopped all exports and forced the, uh, food prices down so that I, the Irish, uh, peasants could afford to afford food. However, um, Peel failed to do this. He instead brought in maize, which couldn't be milled properly in Ireland. And so, overly complicated things. He then tried to repeal the Corn Laws, which then split the Tory government, which we'd all like to see, and it failed uh, horrifically. So the Whigs get in. Uh, The Whigs then decide to uh, ignore everything that the Tories had done. Laissez-faire. The the, the markets will sort themselves out. We don't need to interfere with this, which didn't really work. Uh, They then brought in their own public works, which couldn't be administered properly, and the whole thing was one massive clusterfuck that the British just failed to manage for Ireland. Um, So we ended up with a lot of um, external charity coming in from around the world. The uh, Boston uh, Repeal Association and the Catholic Church managed to generate a lot of money. The East India Company's Irish soldiers, as well as the people of Calcutta, managed to donate £40,000. The Tsar Tsar Alexander II of Russia uh, donated money. Queen Victoria donated £1,000. And the Ottoman Sultan, um, sorry, excuse my pronunciation, Abdelmeid I, tried to offer £10,000 worth, but he was talked down by British... um, by the British Foreign Service to say, well, you know, the Queen's only offering a thousand or two thousand. You can't really offer more than the Queen, so he only ended up paying a thousand. We then end up with the President of America, James Polk, offering fifty dollars, and Honest Abe Lincoln, who was only a com- congressman at the time, offered ten dollars. But the greatest contribution, and I think this has to be one of the greatest uh, moments in history of all time comes from the Choctaw Indians of North America, who managed to raise $170, which roughly equates to $5,000 now. Um, in the 1830s, the uh, Choctaw Indians had been moved along by the, by the Trail of Tears by uh, Andrew Johnson, one of America's worst uh, presidents, after James Madison. And, <laughs> um, they were being moved from Mississippi to Oklahoma by the U.S. government, and at the time, they were be treat, being treated, uh, and to quote, um, we have be, we have had our habitations torn down and burned, our, fo- our um, fences destroyed, cattle turned into our fields, and we ourselves have been scourged, managed, um, manacled, fettered, and otherwise personally abused until by, um, by some testament, some of our best men have been, have died. And yet these people managed to come together to raise money for, for Ireland because they, they felt bad for the, for the starving Irish pe- uh, peasantry and because no one else was doing anything. Um, they, um, it was a, it was a collection made by the, uh, agents within Fort Smith in Arkansas who organized the collection. And this came from mainly from, um, missionaries, traders and the natives but mainly from the natives themselves and it was such a a massive donation from a people who were basically being ethnically cleansed themselves to 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 the irish uh and this is something that has been um commemorated in ireland since then as a sort of kindred spirit movement and i really wish i hadn't drunk so much wine so my vision is so blurry uh (laughs) (laughs) 
2017, um, in County Cork, there was a uh, monument established. Uh, Leo Varadkar has announced a scholarship for uh, Cocktail Indian uh, children to come to Ireland to study at university. And in 2020, they received, the, the Irish managed to raise uh, a certain amount of money that I can't read uh, for the Navajo and Hopi uh, natives, uh, native, uh, tribes who are struggling with COVID. Uh, so although this is a dark period in Ireland's time, I'd like to put this forward as an example of how Ireland, what Ireland means to the world, that even a tribe that is being ethnically cleansed and wiped out and brutally treated by their own government were able to raise money and send it to, to the Irish and say, don't worry, we're here with you. And um, although I'm not wearing green, I'm wearing the closest to uh, St. Patrick's blue that I could find. You are indeed wearing a Gilligan shirt. I see what you've done there. You've gone abstract. And actually, by the time when you first started and we said Ireland's greatest moment and then the words potato famine came out of your mouth, the look on Dorman's face was <laughs> fucking hilarious. Um, but what you've actually come up with is uh, really, I don't know if it's the greatest moment in Irish history, Dorman, but it's a very sweet moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, he went out. I'd like to pass over to Marcus, if I may, first. Because um, he, he has quite a, a measured point to make. Yeah, so, I mean, I thought for a while we were going with American's worst president again with the Trail of Tears. But then we ended up with, like, one of the greatest points in American history, which was solidarity and charitable favour, favor, you know, the philanthropy of Americans, not Ireland, who had it thrust upon them. Uh, and it's still, I think you've ended up with a lovely point for solidarity and charity, but you're still on Ireland's worst moment in history out of a few thousand years of things to choose from. Like it, it's it, it's kind of like if you were to say that Ethiopia's greatest moment was when they invented the Trocra box. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Do you know what though? I like the I I think the greater moment he's referencing is the fact now that. Even as well, even with, uh, Native Americans still getting crapped on in America, um, and being in a shit economic position and stuff, there's something really nice that's still being done, like with the scholarships and things. I think that's great. Um, that's, see, that's good. That wasn't the, I mean, that reminds me of when, um, Boscombe flooded in Cornwall. And I think there was a village in Nigeria sent over 10 pounds in donations to help out the Cornish. Um, yeah, I'm still not convinced because that was not a moment that is a legacy. In fairness as well to Chris, I think Chris isn't entirely convinced uh, after a bottle and a half of wine either, are you, Chris? <laughs> no, is, no, but, uh, I mean, if Sophie was doing this pitch. <laughs> yeah, if Sophie was doing the pitch, it would be different. Yeah, in fairness, the, the callback, the way it, sort of the we gave them money during COVID... And like the cyclical nature of it, that's lovely, and that's great. It's just difficult to. I know you're finding a diamond in a very dark time, but is it great because of the context, and can it be considered great because of said context? I don't know. That'd be my skepticism. Uh, I, I was going to say it, it's more the sort of the the the, the brotherhood of um, people feeling feeling for Ireland in this horrible time and the oppression that they're suffering from. The, let's be honest, the god awful English. Um, who aren't German, who, uh, and that th these people are trying to help you and they, they feel brotherhood and connection to you. 
So Chris wins. Um... <laughs> <laughs> our little, our little wannabe prussian in the corner. What I loved most about your entire fucking pitch was as soon as you mentioned <laughs> the words potato famine, poor Heather, who'd been crapping herself about her pronunciation of Irish uh, political terms, suddenly relaxed as if to say, well, if this idiot's going to go with a potato famine, then I'm fine. <laughs> I was judging myself on way too high a standard. Uh- Alex, can I take issue with your pronunciation of the word pronunciation? (laughs) (laughs) Peak Clive right now. And and if it helps, more Prussians died in the potato famine in Germany than they did at Waterloo. Just if it helps. You're such a little weirdo with your German obsession. (laughs) (laughs) When we're not doing, like, I, I just, I would not be at all surprised if you turn up to next week's down the pub. in Lederhosen, because you'd completely lost your marbles. I did that you were going to have. No, that's that's Bavarian. That's not Prussian enough for Chris. So just whips and chains, then, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and a military uniform. Um, no comments. My children. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, where should we go next? Let's go to James. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Someone want to do an impression of James? Yes. This is what happened the other night when uh, Matt actually muted me and I didn't realise. <laughs> I thought I completely forgot to unmute myself this time. James, Ireland's greatest ever moment. I've gone for something quite abstract and it's quite developed over time. But the greatest moment I've gone for is the whole idea and concept of the Irish pub. Because they've existed for roughly a millennia. You could go with the date of Sean's Bar in Athlone, County Westmeath, which was established in the 10th century. Could even go for the oldest pub in Dudlin, the Brazen Head in 1198. Or you could even go to Grace Neal's in Donaghadi, County Down, which was the first licensed pub in Ireland in 1611. <laughs> 500 Five... years of unlicensed yeah. alcohol. Well, it was brilliant. Yeah, because they weren't required to be licensed till actually 1635. Um, Clive will like this. The Irish pubs or public houses were the working man's alternative to the private drinking establishments. Um, if it Clive's also, a the... working man with his butler bringing him dinner. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah, for 
for the lawyers in the room, the some of the laws that still attribute to Irish pubs, the Drink on Credit to Servants Act, 1735, that basically any publican who sold a drink on credit to servants, labourers, low-age earners had no right to seek help from the law in recovering that debt. So don't ever think an Irish publican is going to offer you credit when you ask for a drink. See, And also, 18th century, quite a weird one, it's still illegal to be married in a pub in Ireland. Um, you could also argue the 19th century, the rise of the spirit groceries with the rise of the temperance movement in Ireland, which to combat declining sales. And some even operated as undertakers, which still exist to this day. So, which I'd find rather amusing. So if you die in a pub, you might be, uh, have your funeral through the same pub. Unlike the British counterparts, they're usually named after the current or previous owner or the street they're located on. Elaborate exterior decoration is rare. They still quite typically look like groceries, even after the decline of the spirit groceries. Although some do have exterior decoration like the Irish house on Wood Quay in Dublin, which was surrounded in 1870 by coloured friezes of nationalist heroes and with iconic traditional themes such as round towers with some movies being filmed in that pub. Obviously, uh, food came out of Irish pubs in Riser the uh, 1970s when it started to be served with the decline of the spirit groceries. You also have pubs links with famous Irish writers and poets such as Patrick Cavana, Brendan Behan and James Joyce. The vast majority of them are still independently owned or licensed or owned by a chain that does not have brewery involvement, which is quite different to the UK. So every pub usually sells very similar but extensive range of products. It's been an integral part of Irish social culture in Ireland. The local pub is a pillar of the community the same way the local church would be. Traditional Irish music. It can't be found in every Irish pub, but many feature live Irish music sessions every weekend. And usually the musicians, etc. aren't paid, but usually receive free drinks for their music. So the Irish pub has been quite key in helping develop Irish music and musicians, and there are plenty of songs out there and plenty of earworms as well. Of course, as well, the Irish pub is completely around the world, especially in the United States. It's a rich one. It's virtually impossible to find any city on the continent without its own unique representation of Irish pub culture. Many of them date to the early 20th, but some go even back to the mid to late 19th century, and most of them come as the result of large-scale emigration, and many are still owned by those with Irish ancestry. Of course, the most recent wave came in the 1990s, thanks to the Guinness Irish Pub concept and the Irish Pub Company, founded by Neil McNally in 1990, which was dedicated to exporting the Irish pub around the world, and that is very true, with over 7,000 worldwide, and I have been to some in quite ridiculous locations um for some reason i found one i think on santorini and even one on carpathos which is only relatively open to tourists nowadays um some argue that these irish pubs are only irish in nature on the outside with the decoration and some of the fittings on the inside however some do try and be very close to what the irish pub is meant to be and for those of you um Alina especially, there is even an Irish pub in Krakow. So you can even have a bit of Ireland over there. And 
Yeah, just the Irish pub. There's just it's so linked to Irish social culture. So many great moments in Irish history and Irish music, Irish writing, etc. It it's a greatest moment in Irish history, but there's no one specific date that we can pinpoint. But I felt it deserved a mention here. Fair enough. Although when you say it's responsible for many moments in Irish history, I want to say name one, but I'm not going to be mean <laughs> uh, because I have to say that I'm not sure it's the greatest thing um, that there's a fucking Irish pub everywhere you go in Spain or everywhere else. The only one that's acceptable, and we've done this before on this podcast, is the Dead Rabbit in Manhattan because it does the best Irish coffee ever any, anywhere in the entire world. Um, other than that, I have a ban on going in Irish pubs anywhere on the planet um you even get them the airport in lima has a massive one and it's like what I, I don't understand there's also one in the airport at dubai as well um it's I, slightly batshit crazy uh marcus what say you about the idea of irish pubs being the best thing they've ever given the world yeah so i've been into uh an irish pub in vienna because it was raining uh, I can't say it was exactly nothing but a stereotype on the Irish culture and borderline offensive. Um, no, it, there wasn't a moment. I mean, Lockie's win of pubs was controversial in its own way. Because it was shit. I've just seen the photos of his <laughs> knees, but they are great, and he's now winning the, be- the best knees competition and the down <laughs> the pub uh, summer holiday. But sorry, Beth. Um, yeah, see, pubs for building is like all buildings, okay, but pubs for a moment. I think you mentioned like Friday nights was the closest thing to a, maybe the founding of a pub, but there wasn't a date. Um, the only date I think in there was the Licensing Act, but that was in Ireland, and they were talking international. There's, there's also a danger of being wildly stereotypical of Irish pubs that are not run by Irish people, where they have New Zealanders in the kitchen and Aussies behind the bar, and they're managed... <laughs> by some American corporate chain. So it's possibly a negative. The, the traditional Irish pub in Ireland, yes, but then as an export, no, possibly. And, and it's not a moment. It's just not a moment. Dorman, how do you feel when you go abroad and you see an Irish pub? Are you dying to get in and have a look so you can feel at home? Not to feel at home. Um, <laughs> you, you always have to go in and rate them. Um, as an Irish person, that there's a very good Irish pub next to the Duomo in Florence, which is a nice juxtaposition of the nicest Renaissance architecture in Italy and an Irish pub. Um, <laughs> there's also one in Hiroshima, which is two stories up. So it's just a wonderfully clean glass wall with an Irish pub stuck to it, two stories into the air. I agree with what Marcus said about the export element of this and how this isn't a good mm-hmm. thing um, for your own edification as well. The reason why pubs also double as funeral homes is because of the concept of a wake, whereby a party would be held to send the man away, so it's far more convenient if he's there uh, and you don't have to truck him back and forth. Um, yeah, I mean, we spend a lot of time drinking in this country. Pubs are obviously fantastic. Um, and they provide a venue for comedy clubs. But when you decided to mention that people don't get paid, I am now bitter and twisted about that because I don't get paid for gigs. And I also don't get to gigs, so now I'm sad and angry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Lockie, have you, I never worked in an Irish pub. I, I just wouldn't. What about you? 
Um, I worked in a bar that was converted from an O'Neill's and so had some very nice kind of O'Neill style tiling on the floor, but that's as close as I've come personally. Um, yeah, we were next door to an O'Neill's and that was it. I, I mean, I, I, I quite, you know, I will go into Irish pubs as much in the same way Dorman does. One of them used to sponsor a, a rugby team that I, I played for in Japan. Uh, and so Paddy Foley's in Rapongi, uh, was, was, was my bar out there for a time. But, um, I don't necessarily feel hugely drawn to Irish pubs if there's a, a local alternative. One thing they are doing is propagating this stereotype, Dorman, that all Irish people are drunkards, which is borderline offensive, isn't it? Well, it's a fact. It might be accurate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't going to say it. You're Irish. You can get away with it. I, I think that they, they they do really lend themselves. On, in a way, thank you, James, for bringing this up to this uh, diddly idle stereotype where you go in and they're playing the Dropkick Murphys who are American and mm-hmm. they're drinking perhaps Guinness, but most likely other beers which aren't Irish. And there's no the, the thing that's great about an Irish pub is that when you go in, it it's close and homely, and you just immediately know you can sit and have a chat. Mm. And the yeah. export pub is never that. It's it feels like a bar. It's always got a sticky floor, a bad smell. Yes. Uh, flat coke, and uh, yeah, it's loud and obnoxious. You say these things like they're negatives, but that's part of the charm. <laughs> Although there is one positive as well from the proliferation of the Irish pubs worldwide. Say about a millennium down the line, you're going to get some archaeologists digging up Irish pubs all around the world, and they're going to think the Irish conquered the world. Ah, uh, yeah, but we did that with um, fucking monasteries already, so <laughs> to an extent. Well, yeah. So the uh, independent Irish military record. Although I did break my own rule on March the 17th, 2020 in Iceland and go and get shit-faced with a load of Irish people in an Irish pub in Reykjavik on Paddy's Day and it proved to be the last night out I ever basically had because then uh, our flight got delayed four times on the way home because of COVID and then lockdowns happened and then the world ended. So I actually somehow have a really vague positive memory of being in one of those horrifically loud horrible irish pubs with a sticky floor with a load of american irish people who weren't really irish uh, and it, it actually makes me feel nostalgic because it's basically the last time i got to leave the house which is sad right okay who have we got left uh we have a couple of people who are going to be serious I mean, let, let's just get mine out of the way i didn't spend a lot of time prepping uh i give you again i, I I don't know whether to nail it down as 1994 being a final... Yeah, let's go with 1994's Eurovision as being Ireland's greatest ever moment. Let's go with the fact that in the early to mid-90s, the nation of Ireland tried to bankrupt itself by repeatedly winning Eurovision and then couldn't even fuck it up. They tried desperately to fuck it up. So they won in 1992, and this was great. Um, I'm going to reach for my notes because I can't remember what the w- woman was called. I vaguely remember that it was a weepy song, uh, and it was called Why Me? And the Irish nation was since then. Mm, possibly, possibly not. Anyway, she was 41 years old and 22 days, which apparently makes her the oldest woman to ever win Eurovision, which is sad because she's not actually that old. Uh, but the song was called Why Me? And 1992, Ireland won. And it was great because, yay, Ireland won. Uh, but then Why Me indeed, asked Ireland, as they then proceeded to bankrupt themselves by repeatedly winning it over and over again and having to host it the next year. So 
They kind of took it semi-seriously in 1993. They hosted it. They spent a fortune. I believe it cost about a quarter of a billion pounds to host Eurovision. Um, so they spent that money. They spent it well. And Neve Kavanagh fucking went and won again with In Your Eyes. Don't remember that one. Um, which meant that they were the fourth country to win two years in a row. There's a bit of bragging rights there. Awesome. Yay, Ireland. And then came 1994, where Ireland thought, bugger this, we can't afford to host this again. So they then started putting complete dross into it um, in the hope that they wouldn't win. And so along came Rock and Roll Kids, which was Paul Harrington and Charlie McGettigan. And that was pretty shit and totally unmemorable because I can't remember what they looked like or what the song sounded like. But then Ireland went and completely shot itself in the foot because while everybody was making up their minds about who to vote for, they slapped on Michael Flatley and Riverdance. And the whole world fell in love with a load of weird dancing where nobody moved their upper body and flapped their legs like like fish out of water. Um, and then came back after the break that it was on in and voted for Ireland. So Ireland won three years in a row, uh, which was devastating for them because they then had to pay to host the damn thing again. They managed to fuck it up in 1995 because Norway picked up the slack. Um, but then Ireland went and stung themselves again by winning in 1996 as well, uh, which led us on to 1997, which I don't think there's any coincidence that there is a correlation between the last time anyone liked Britain enough to vote for us in the Eurovision Song Contest um, and then Tony Blair being in charge after that. And ever since then, we've got nil points and no one loves us uh, because he was a wanker. So that is I'm giving you 1994, the moment when Ireland tried to stiff themselves out of a third win in a row and put Riverdance on and managed to make everybody fall in love with Irish dancing. Uh, I was probably guilty of running round my front room, trying to flap my legs like a fish and do it. Never could get the hang of it. Uh, Dorman, how do you feel when, when you see Riverdance? Uh, angry. <laughs> More so than anything. I, I know Irish dancers. I know people who do it like on tour. Um, and actual Irish dancing is one thing to behold. Um, River dance is a, a cousin, however vague, <laughs> of it. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't watch the Eurovision. I know a lot of people who do, but but we've got a weird relationship with it in this country. Where I, I, the one I was thinking, Dana, the one I was thinking of, she she was actually far earlier. She was in 1970, but she ran for president. Yeah, on the back of her Eurovision success. It was just in the in the fact that in the space of three years, you went from this almighty victory in 1992 and being like, yeah, the first one since Dana, this is awesome, to then trying to enter the worst song ever in the history of Eurovision to try and get out of spending another quarter of a billion pounds on hosting the fucking thing the following year. It's great. And then I love the fact that you actually managed to succeed in doing that, but then put Riverdance on which presumably they thought would just be like a mediocre halftime filler and not a worldwide sensation that made Fatty Flatley rich beyond his wildest dreams. Oh, success and failure, that's, that's, some, that's very Irish. <laughs> yeah, that's why I think it's your greatest ever moment. Sure. Marcus, have you ever tried Irish dancing? Can you try it now so we can watch? No, I've done a, I've done a Kaylee once and enjoyed it, but that's a whole different culture, but very similar dancing. Um, so, I mean, kudos for somebody, somebody getting a, a Tony Blair dig in there. That, that was very good. I uh, enjoyed that. Um, that I, but my only comment really is... 
because sometimes satire is just too good. And uh, but no, is... uh, 1997, 1994 uh, doesn't win it um, because Father Ted, my lovely horse, would have. Well, this is it because this leads us on to Beth's because it was such a moment in Irish history, you trying to like curtail your own fucking chances of winning that your own shit attempts to be shit in Eurovision got satirised, didn't they, Beth? And this is your greatest moment in Irish history. Did indeed, yes. Yeah. So thank Alex has quite nicely led into uh, what I'm going to go for. So as we know, Ireland winning Eurovision so many times in the 90s has become somewhat an icon of the decade. However, not only was it an icon in and of itself as being something that had not really been done before in the way it had, but the phenomenon also inspired one of the greatest Irish Irish moments in history, but also one of the greatest Irish moments in Irish TV. I am, of course, talking of the greatest ever episode of the best TV series to come out of Ireland, but let's be honest, that's not very difficult. Um, (laughs) From the second series of Father Ted. For those of you who don't know what happens in this classic episode, although if you haven't already seen it, you're already in the bad books of our judges. It is loosely based on the success of Ireland in the Eurovision contest in the 90s. The competition is instead called Eurosong, but again, you don't have to be a detective to figure that, that one out. The episode begins when Father Dougal Maguire, the resident simpleton with the heart of Irish gold, has Eurosong fever weeks ahead of the competition. Dougal thinks he and the title character, Father Ted, who, as we all know, was banished to Craggy Island due to some sus behaviour involving money, should write a song for the contest. Ted naturally doesn't want to do this, but discovers that his nemesis, Father Dick Byrne, plans to enter a song. Ted decides that if Dick can write a song, so can he and Dougal. And they write a song and they decide to call it My Lovely Horse. Initially, Dougal doesn't quite get the idea of what the song is going to be about with coming up with some interesting ideas for lyrics, such as my lovely horse, I want to hold you so tight. I want to rub my fingers through your tail and love you all night and take this lump of sugar, baby. You know, you want it Um, because he referenced that that would be something like the rap fellas would write. Um, But Ted replies, you can forget about them, Dougal. You can forget about ICT and Scoopy Scoopy Dog Dog. They're no help to us now. And after working all night, what they come up with is a tuneless excuse for a song with ridiculous lyrics. My lovely, lovely, lovely horse running through the field. Where are you going with your fetlocks blowing in the wind? I want to shower you with sugar lumps and ride you over fences. Polish your hooves every single day and bring you to the horse dentist. My lovely, lovely, lovely horse. You're a pony no more. Running around with a man on your back like a train in the night. After trying the song out on the housekeeper, Mrs. Doyle, and Father Jack, Jack is so infuriated that he shoots Ted's guitar with a sawn-off shotgun, which I wonder where he's even got that from. And it's so bad that nothing can help, not even all the four-leaf shamrocks, which would bring the level of look they need. Disillusioned, they're about to give up when Ted discovers the lyrics, almost perfectly fit a tune from an obscure B-side for an entry from the fifth place act in Norway's Eurosong selection from 1976. Ted thinks that because the whole band died in a plane crash, including all the record company staff and everyone involved in the copyright, that they'd get away with stealing it. And at the Dublin Theatre, where A Song for Ireland, their selection process is being hosted, Ted and Dougal listen to Dick Byrne's entry, The Miracle is Mine. It's a very impressive rendition with a choir, a band and a passionate performance from Byrne. 
Ted is worried, goes backstage for a smoke, because why not? When he hears the Norwegian tune first being whistled by a maintenance worker, then it's playing in a lift. He's horrified, realising that the song is more well-known than he thought, and he and Dougal are forced to adopt Plan B, singing the dreaded original version. However, despite their poor performance and against the obvious wishes of the audience, they are selected as Ireland's entry, ensuring that Ireland wouldn't win the, the contest after having won it the last five years in a row. The episode closes at the contest with Ted, Dougal, Father Jack and Mrs Doyle listening to every country awarding them nil point. The episode is most often is often regarded as one of the most popular, appearing on many best of compilations. And of course, one of the most memorable moments being the video for My Lovely Horse that Ted and Dougal dream about when considering the worldwide fame they think will come with winning the contest. Indeed, if you ask someone what their favourite moments of Father Ted are, My Lovely Horse will invariably be up there. In fact, it's still so popular that in May 2014, a petition to make My Lovely Horse Ireland's official entry for Eurovision 2015 was formally submitted to the government, but was rejected by the petitions committee. Boo. Boo. In short, A Song for Europe is a classic of Irish TV. And again, as I said earlier, there's not much else in that department anyway. It still resonates today and is never not funny. You can watch it a thousand times and you will still laugh at Dougal's stupidity, Ted's sly behaviour and the indomitable indomitable Mrs Doyle's steadfast support of the priests when most sane people would have been long gone. As an Irish icon loved around the world, a song for Europe must surely be Ireland's greatest moment in history. Do you know what? It may well have been, but I just can't look at that idiot that played Dougal without... I mean, you want to talk about hate crimes. Here's an Irish hate crime for you, Dorman. Thermo Man. What the fuck was that? That sitcom that he did after Father Ted, where he basically played Father Dougal again, but um was a superhero. Yeah, he was good in that, and then they replaced him with somebody else who was like, he changed into a different character, and you realise that actually he was carrying it. <laughs> Marcus, you've been dancing away to my lovely horse. Yeah, big fan. Um, I mean, at least we, I was going to say it's not quite a moment, but I guess it's the moment of release is what Beth's talking about. It has a very long legacy. Uh, I'm not sure it's up there with Irish Parliament and, uh, you know, abortion rights, but. Why not? <laughs> well, I was going to say, well, as an Englishman who obviously isn't living in Ireland having to live under their political system, it is giving us quite a lot in uh, in exports. I'm a big fan of anything um, Father Ted related generally. Uh, there's never been a bad episode. Uh, Speed 3 or, is particularly good. Um, yeah, can't really fault that. It's catchy. It's an earworm, as Beth says. It really gets under your skin. Father Ted is basically, I think, Ireland's official second language. Uh, there's no disagreements from uh, Dorman. I think it was English, Father Ted, Gaelic. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm happy with that. Uh, I, I think his face was a disagreement there, Dorman. Uh, Gaelic isn't a language, Marcus. It's Gaelga. <laughs> um, but Father Ted is. Father Ted quotes, Simpsons quotes, Gaelga. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, as a historian, this episode teaches you a great lesson about plagiarism. So I think <laughs> on that alone, it deserves uh, recognition. I disagree with you saying that this is the best Irish television or uh, television Ireland has to offer, as you've clearly never watched the Late Late Toy Show, which is a unique Christmas version of our 
famous Late Late Show and is the greatest thing you will ever watch on TV. Um, no, this is a great episode of a great show. The episode or the bit where they write the song and they just like they're shrouded in smoke and Ted's like disheveled and he's just abusing Dougal is fantastic. Um, shame about the guy who wrote it turning into a bit of a dick, but you know. You can separate art from a man, and it is really, really funny. So, is it Ireland? Yeah, I, I can't believe you've got better TV than Graham Norton, like kind of river dancing a caravan over on its roof. Uh, just don't believe it exists. Oh, really small, though. What about Bally Kiss Angel? Wasn't no, that Irish? The, the Late Late Toy Show is they get our TV, usually now it's Ryan Tuberty. They give him a long microphone. They have him stand next to children in a Christmas jumper. Children tell him about toys. He makes innuendos at the children. It's amazing. <laughs> and completely politically incorrect by the sounds of it. Oh, for sure, for sure. He got in trouble this year for saying, oh, fuck, when the Fanta bottle exploded all over him. But more politically incorrect than Ted with a tiny hit the moustache doing a Chinese impression. It was a different time. Ah, uh, a simpler time. Right, okay. Let's go to let's go to Kate. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Uh I'm just looking for my notes. Sorry. <laughs> right. Um so there was some mention on the chat earlier, Dorman, that anybody who could pronounce four names was gonna win or some something along those lines, I think, right? Uh yeah. So if I said Neve, Shefra, Siobhan and Gavorn, am I quite close? Uh, Shefra, uh, Garvon, but yeah, yeah, pretty close. For, for an English person? Yeah, yeah, it's easy. <laughs> so yeah, I apologise in advance for the um, crapness of this evening's entry, but I was too busy trying to learn Irish and epically failing. It's fine. I spent nine years doing that. <laughs> yeah, I spent uh, nine hours and failed miserably. I don't even have hello. So, but we have had some quite serious political moments this evening. So I fear I may have underestimated, but um, it's done now. So I will continue. And as we have heard, Ireland has had many, many fantastic moments, many great moments. So many that I had to make a short list. On my short list was the moment Ronnie Drew formed the Dubliners. However, someone suggested he looked like Trotsky, so I crossed him off. (laughs) The runner-up was Guinness, but that seemed obvious. Knowing to my penchant for the obscure and unexpected, I ultimately chose bacon. Rashes of lovely, salty, crispy deliciousness. Bacon aficionados enjoy the cured meat in everything from classic dishes like chowders and carbonara to more adventurous concoctions such as bacon ice cream, chocolate-covered bacon and bacon jam. Yuck. Bacon you know is probably... Just to tell you, do you know that in America they even package up the fat from bacon and sell that? Sell bacon fat? After not... you've cooked it, they collect it and then you can buy the bacon fat. I'm not surprised. If I cook a large quantity of bacon, I will save the bacon fat and then I will like roast potatoes in it or, or whatever. Yeah. Is that wrong? Not if you're American. Well, I'm not though. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't waste anything. I'm like, I'm like somebody living in rationing or something. <laughs> Speaking about America, bacon probably is America and Europe's favourite pork product. 
Um, it's inspired countless memes, as you have seen on my uh, on my Zoom picture today and slogans, as well as the invention of creations such as turkey bacon for our pork free friends and vegetarian and vegan versions for our non meat eaters. Everybody loves a slice of bacon. And with low sodium and lean varieties, even the health conscious can partake. But the passion for cured pork stretches way back through history and to another part of the world. Salted pork belly first appeared on dining tables thousands of years ago in China. Pork curing methods spread through the Roman Empire and Anglo-Saxon peasants cooked with bacon fat. Etymologically, the word refers to meat from the back of the animal. But the cut used to make bacon comes from the side or belly of the hog. Historically, bacon was a very different thing. Large chunks of meat cured by soaking them in brine, with an end result very different from that with which we are familiar today. Until well into the 16th century, the Middle English term, and term bacon referred to all pork in general. In the 12th century, a church in Great Dunmo promised a side of bacon to any married man who could swear before the congregation and God, that he'd not quarrelled with his wife for a year and a day. Hence the expression, to bring home the bacon. Anyway, to Ireland. And talking about bringing home the bacon. A shoemaker's son from Waterford in South East Ireland did just that when he invented one of today's kitchen staples and worldwide favourites, the bacon rasher. Henry Denny started his own bacon factory in 1820. He developed and perfected radical new bacon curing methods at his processing plant, patenting several bacon curing techniques. He innovated how bacon was cured forever. As I said, prior to 1820, bacon was a very different thing. Denny decided to change that. He used long, flat pieces of meat instead of chunks and opted for dry salt instead of brine. In doing so, he invented the rasher of bacon as we know it today. This new way of curing led to better quality and longer shelf life of the product. They exported to Europe, the Americas and India. At the turn of the century, competition from many countries, particularly Denmark, was steadily increasing. But Irish bacon, Henry Denny and Sons, was still the market leader. They formed an association in Hamburg, bought a bacon factory in Jutland and built one in Silkborg. They also set up the first Wiltshire bacon factory. So next time you order a full breakfast, pay homage to Mr. Denny himself for inventing the rasher of bacon as we know it. Without him, the full Irish or English breakfast would be a very different thing, <laughs> as would a Caesar salad and hunter's chicken. While pigs in blankets and bacon sandwiches wouldn't exist at all. So I give you the moment Henry Denny invented the bacon rasher as Ireland's greatest moment in history. You've just made everybody so hungry. In this chat, like everyone now is drooling for a bacon sandwich. I'm completely sold. Marcus? Yes, thank you. Um, so Kate's um, greatest moment in Irish history is the murder of millions of helpless animals. Cool. Yeah. Um, I knew I had a... Because you're a vegetarian, aren't you? Yeah. Have you I don't ever eat vegetarian bacon? No. You've never eaten vegetarian bacon? Don't. No, I don't do the imitation okay. stuff. And I grew up in a bedroom, so I could really smell it every day and it doesn't do anything for me. Um, so Zach did his research. He, he kind of bit of nepotism, knows how to brown those, knows how to basically suck me off, um, and that is what Britain is be- built on. Um, however, 50% of the judging panel, yeah, um, to get the pay rights and promotion. Um, whereas 50% of um, your panel 
are vegetarian. And I know Dorman is a big fan of Irish bacon, but um, yeah, I think that'll work in your favour, Kate. This is where I struggled to choose between Guinness and bacon because I was pretty sure that you were vegetarian, but I thought that Dorman was Tito also. I was like, mm. yeah. <laughs> also as well can i just say marcus that if you're the one that isn't turned on by the smell of bacon cooking kate's not the one with the problem you are yeah dorman um i mean i have no such qualms i am a huge fan of bacon bacon is amazing you are right denny's denny's rashers are the king um they're very expensive but you get what you pay for um if i could be a little bit serious um up until the famine uh, the pig played a critical role in the average Irish peasant household. It was known as the little man who pays the rent because mm. um, it was it provided manure to like uh, grow potatoes. And it was also a fantastic waste disposal device, among other things. But it was very, very important. And the fact that we created such an, a legacy for him in rashers, mm. I think, is nothing but an homage. And, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, they say the only the only part of the pig that is is wasted is the squeal. Don't yes. they? There's yeah. some some phrase about that. <laughs> and that is the worst part of it, I think, uh, would be the squeal. <laughs> uh, no, I, I love rashers. Rashers. I've just got deliverance in my head now. Squeal, piggy, squeal. <laughs> <laughs> I can't count on whether or not we do that, Marcus. But uh, yeah, I like it. I like food. I think Zach would like us to uh, confirm that Marcus was talking about figuratively sucking him off and not logic, like literally. Was he? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, Zach, but I'm definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Kate's like, I don't want to win that much. Uh, Lucky, how badly do you want to win? Um, well, badly enough to do some homework. Um... <laughs> Lockie, you went for something serious. We were going to get in for a whole slew of uh, my lovely horse and Irish piss takes. So you went, yeah, didn't you? No, I I was going to do kicking Bishop Brennan up the arse, but then, uh, but then Beth got in there first with the Father Ted reference. So, I mean, I I then decided I had to do the Good Friday Agreement, which is a little bit more serious. Um, and I, I suppose I kind of it initially looked at it from a kind of critiquing point of view because it, you know, it's, I guess it's a reasonably obvious choice. It's quite a big moment in, in ending violence, except that it didn't. That was my kind of, my, my kind of critiquing point in that, you know, what, what followed. I mean, you've got some pretty big statements. Uh, Bertie Ahern uh, at the Easter Rising, um, commemoration in 1998. So, so shortly after uh, the signing of the agreement says uh, the British government are effectively out of the question and neither the British Parliament nor people have any legal right under this agreement to impede the achievement of Irish unity if it had the consent of the people north and south. Uh, our nation is and always will be a 32 county nation I and mean, possibly in, a, in the sense of selection for the Irish rugby team. But um, but uh, otherwise, there's, there's a lot of debate to be had around that. And that, would, that if, you know, if it had the consent of the people north and south, well, you try achieving the consent of people north and south, if is doing some seriously heavy lifting uh, around that. Plus, what follows? I mean, you, you end up in August that year with the Omar bombing, which is the worst single incident all through this sad history of, of violence and trouble with uh, 21 dead in the blast, uh, eight more dying of injuries and two, 220 injured in the process. So I had to kind of 
convince myself that this was actually worth pursuing and I shouldn't just do Ray Houghton scoring against Italy in 1994. But I, I decided to sort of persevere um, with it a little bit. And, and to, to make it kind of make sense, I kind of had to kind of position myself with the idea that when you're banging your head against the wall, the, the nicest thing in the world would, would be it stopping um, and, and sort of looking back on the moment, that moment of stopping the pain uh, would actually be quite a, quite a pleasant thing. Anyway, um, we, we need to sort of look at what, what had preceded it, uh, of course. And um, what we're talking about is the troubles. I'm not going to go all the way back to the 17th century. Don't worry. Um, and I'm, I'm not. <laughs> no, uh, sorry. Uh, and I'm not even going to dip too much into into the very early 20th century. And, and we've, we've largely covered the kind of early steps towards uh, the creation of the Republic. What I will say, though, kind of around that is the violence. I kind of characterize some of these some of these men involved in the fighting, um, like the Black and Tans, as almost like the, the Freikorps in Germany. Um, and you're talking about a lot of ex-soldiers coming away from horrible conflicts all laden with a healthy dose of PTSD and desensitization to conflict and the idea that they're beating on the people who'd made their lives difficult while they were at the front um and and so yeah there's a there's a really unsavory nasty spiteful violent element uh to a lot of this I'm gonna go skip past that and, and go straight to the kind of post-world war two uh element really and and chucking it kind of, I guess it, you know, where does it start? I mean, I, I kind of start drawing up my notes around the kind of mid to late 1950s with um, a, a kind of border campaign, which it kind of kicked on, um, I guess, in a fairly ad hoc way. You've got sort of small groups that call themselves the IRA um, who are, you know, engaging in raids on British bases, taking weapons. It was a bit, a bit incoherent, small groups acting independently. And it kind of becomes a bit more, firm in 1956 when you actually get a um a general election for the uk in which Sinn fein um get a few seats elected in in the north which was largely because the irish nationalists stopped competing and so anyone who of that ilk votes Sinn fein and that kind of encourages the ira to take things more seriously now over the years of the ira getting a bit busy they achieve virtually nothing except really pissing off um, unionists in Ulster. They don't impress Northern Irish nationalists uh, at all. So they don't get close to achieving their aims. Um, and it was all called off in 1962. But by that stage, the damage was done and everyone was firmly, firmly angry. Through the 60s, you know, people are, people are very annoyed and it kind of spins into a civil rights movement, um, which then gets very unsavory. Um, 1966 is quite lively. You've got the um, 50th anniversary of the East arriving. You've got Nelson's Pillar in Dublin getting blown up. You've got, um, with the kind of what's gone on before, uh, a, a man called Ian Paisley, who we all like, of course, um, founds the Ulster Constitution Defence Committee uh, and out of that spins the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF, um, is fairly notorious during this time. And they go on a, a, a little campaign of, of petrol bombing Catholic homes, schools and businesses. Um, uh, Irish well, Catholics in the north already are, are struggling uh, with prejudice and, and, and maltreatment. Things like um, priority for homes being given to single Protestants as opposed to Catholic families. 
um, stuff like that going on. And so this business of civil rights marching gets going in 1968 um, with with Catholics, you know, get, getting going in August of, of 68. 2nd um, March uh, is in October. So there's a bit of tempo to these marches and the civil rights, kind of Catholic civil rights uh, movement up there, all of which is beaten down. Um, and that's 2nd March in October 68. Um, the RUC laid into the marches heavily, all on camera, brilliantly. Um, but then out of this, more groups formed. So students forming the People's Democracy uh, in Belfast. Uh, more marches get going that are repeatedly uh, attacked. And you also have false flag bombings of infrastructure going on by loyalists. Uh, they're claiming to be the IRA. Now, the IRA have been quiet since 62. In 69, that changed when they split. And, uh, and this group, the Provisional IRA, give their statement in 69. Uh, we declare our allegiance to the 32-county Irish Republic proclaimed at Easter 19. 16, established by uh, the first oil Aran uh, in 1919, overthrown by force of arms in 1922 and su- suppressed to this day by the existing British imposed six county and 26 county partition states. We call upon the Irish people at home and in exile for increased support towards defending our people in the north and the eventual achievement of the full political, social, economic and cultural freedom of Ireland. All good fun. So this is where it gets very lively. And 1970 to 72 is probably it at its worst. 1972 uh, is, I want to say, the busiest year um, of the whole business, actually, the whole troubles, uh, as we call them. Um, lots of weapons coming in from the USA and indeed Libya. Um, the provisional IRA uh, launched 1,300 bomb attacks uh, in which 90 of their soldiers are killed. Uh, you also have a hundred British uh, soldiers uh, killed um, as the the British commitment to all of this grows. They made headlines themselves, of course, in in January 1972 when soldiers from First Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, opened fire on civilians uh, in Bogside, Derry, London, Derry, killing 14 and injuring similar sorts of numbers. Um, the UVF were absolutely no help, uh, of course. Uh, attacks on random Catholic civilians and uh, Catholic-owned businesses carried out. Raids against Territorial Army uh, as well to secure weapons. They detonated car bombs in the Republic, mostly in Dublin, um, uh, killed a few in 72, 73, and then 1974, uh, four car bombs in Dublin and Monaghan killed 33 and injured 300. Um, through 72 and 75, there are various ceasefires and restarts. The conflict widened to England uh, and Scotland. Um, yeah, there were attacks in London, Liverpool, Birmingham, among others. The UVF uh, took the misery to Scotland, actually. They, uh, they blew up a pub in Glasgow. The UVF were steadily being sort of whittled down by the authorities, uh, arresting quite a lot of them. Uh, so they got a bit more discerning in their targeting, but still carrying out assassinations well into the 1990s. A lot of the fighting was characterized, you know, as attacks, reprisals, assassinations between the IRA, loyalist paramilitaries and the British Army uh, in Northern Ireland. And there's stacks of horrible, horrible examples. And I'm not going to do many of these in any, any of these in any detail, but they continue right up to, well, I mean, December 1993 is a kind of big moment because you've got the joint declaration by John Major and Albert Reynolds, the T-shirt at that time, who said quite a few things, among which was the, uh, the United Ireland could only come about by peaceful means. And uh, that actually stuck. And it's kind of it, indicative that people were fed up. Um, you know, yeah. 
loyalists didn't like the sound of that, uh, particularly. The IRA did agree to a ceasefire in August of 1994. Uh, the UVF a bit later, but there's horrible sectarian violence in between that time. October 1994, um, they agreed to a ceasefire. So in theory, we can have peace uh, now. Well, kind of. There's lots of motivations. I, I, I thought about bringing Clausewitz uh, into the discussion at this stage uh, and Clive's yawning, so I won't do, do too much uh, of that. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the whole idea that you need uh, the people, you need your, your politicians and you need your army uh, if, you, if you're going to, you know, on side, if you're going to maintain any kind of fighting. And, and politicians, I think, are the most difficult people. Well, no, it's the soldiers themselves, you kind of know what they're going to do. They're going to keep fighting, quite simply. The people are so sick of it. Um, but, you know, unionists didn't want any hint of Republican control over the North. And Irish nationalists want the, the door at least open to a united Ireland in the future. But they definitely want the British out. Uh, as well overridingly politicians want to stay in power uh fighters happy to carry on pretty much and the people themselves because it comes down to these guys a lot you talk about protestants in the north they kind of they just want to disband the paramilitary groups catholics want equality they want to be treated properly all of them want the violence uh, to stop but none of them want to be on the losing side i'm i'm, I'm going to speed up because i know i'm just taking too long really but um 1997 is a big year there's all sorts of blocks to the to the peace process no one wants to talk to Sinn Féin because they're so closely associated with the ira similar you know a, a couple of parties of um uh, of unionists up north and they're kind of to and fro out of this protest process but 1997 um you have an election. Labour Party gets in in Westminster, but you have uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness win seats in, in, in the north. This new government would actually allow Sinn Féin into the negotiations. Uh, and so in September 1997, the multi-party ta- talks start. It's not without friction. Sinn Féin got temporarily booted from the talks in February 98 after some IRA killings, but agreement was reached. 17 hours over the deadline, which was supposed to be midnight, 9th of April, uh, Good Friday, 10th of April. This included devolved government, prisoner releases, troop reductions, paramilitary decommissioning targets, provision for polls on Irish unification, civil rights measures, and parity of esteem. All right. Well, that's something. Um, what then follows is a referendum, both sides of the divide, north and south. And in the north, 71% supported the multi-party agreement. Uh, almost all Catholics voted yes, but 57% of Protestants did. Um, and so even that, amongst the people you're going, to be, you're going to be most objectionable to any part of this process, you know, gains a majority. In the, in the Republic, it's, it's, it's uniform, pretty much. 94% yes in favour of this. Now, I know I mentioned Omar and kind of things that w- went followed, and I am wrapping up now, I promise you. When the Omar bombing took place, because of the expression of public will in support of the Good Friday Agreement, those politicians know that the people are not behind them in any kind of hint of continuing the violence, okay? They have to make noises to stop, and they do, actually, which means that any kind of paramilitary organised, you know, organised activity in the future is going to be without popular support of any kind, and so it cannot take anything like the form it once had. It's practically done, and the reason I know it's done is because when I go to the Somme and I take kids there, uh, we'll go to a place called the Ulster Tower, uh, which is where 36 Ulster uh, Division fought out there. And, and one of the first questions I'll ask them is, do you know where Ulster is? 
Okay. And these are almost entirely kids from the south of England. Okay. Often from London. And we're there. Do you know where Ulster is? Uh, Germany? France? England? I don't, I don't know. Don't know where it is. Okay. 30 years ago, everyone would have known where it was because it was in the news. You know, these attacks are in history uh, now. And that violence is, thank goodness, behind us. And it's the Good Friday Agreement that made that possible. So my very long-winded pitch uh, is this. Um, Three and a half thousand civilian, no, three and a half thousand people, about half of them civilians died, about 50,000 of them injured, and this all held Ireland in the past. And uh, I want to say kind of defined Ireland uh, for a very long time. The Good Friday Agreement made moving on from that possible. And as the Guinness advert says, uh, the Irish could prove that they were made of more. Well done, Lockie. Uh, you've just boiled a massively complicated uh, bit of political history down into... Uh, you wouldn't even go on that long, about 10 minutes, which is uh, fine. Um, some of my earliest memories of running away from bomb scares in central London. Uh, so I was petrified of people with Irish accents for quite a large portion of my early childhood. Uh, and my cat is now. I must have passed it on to him. Dorman, Good Friday Agreement, yes or no? Mm, yes. Like, well done. Um, very, despite, <laughs> I wouldn't even, I don't even think it was that long. I think it was a very succinct uh, summary of everything because there are, there's so many factors at play. And I think that the concern is it's often trivialized here to a degree. I don't think it's as trivialized over your side, but, um, there can be a tendency to joke about it. And I, I'm guilty of that as well, but, uh, there it was messy it was very bloody and there's a very real chance it can still come back and i think that understanding the history of it really helps you understand the prevention of it in the future uh because there is a united ireland is only becoming more likely and that's not just me saying that from a nationalist perspective or republican perspective that's me saying that looking at polls and also looking at the way things are going up north and brexit and that's kind of thing so uh this could hope this will hopefully stay in the past, but whether or not it does, uh can only wait and see. This is the thing. I don't think you can ever underestimated what a big deal it was to just get them all to stop killing yeah. each other. Um I think if you perhaps if you weren't around looking at people like Beth who's too young to remember any of it, um if you weren't around just understanding that you actually managed people that hated each other that much. You managed to get them to stop trying to kill each other. That was massive, wasn't it, Marcus? Yeah, I, I don't think Lockie did go on too long. I thought it was really nicely summarised of the last kind of 20-plus years of the violence uh, put in there. Uh, some really nice references as well, Lockie. Can I pull out putting in the Ulster Tower is particularly nice um, touching in, like from your your lane. I, I really like that, actually making it relevant um, purely for myself. Yeah, the violence against the, the Terries, as they were, the Territorial Army, uh, was pretty bad, both in Ireland and in the UK. Um, it's still part of the training of, you know, changing your route that you drive to go into the reserves um, in case someone straps a bomb to the bottom of your car. Um, but, yeah, I, I think you played it really fairly because uh, my approach to it is I've got a lot of friends who were in Op Banner, which was the military uh, contingent people who were scarred mentally and physically, 
um, because of it. And I think it's fair to pay tribute to them, but also all the civilians caught up in it and all the, the bastards who, uh, but like kind of caused it. So yeah, I, I can't think of much more in our generation that is as important as the Good Friday Agreement. Um, I think it's a really important one to include. It's and arguably a really nice like, one um, and quite poignant. I think. Yeah, arguably one of Britain's um, most important moments of the last 30 odd years as well is um, the fact that the Good Friday Agreement happened. Uh, yeah. Both sides like of the border and internationally, I know, you know, America played a large part, but thank God people have stopped killing each other basically. Yeah. If, right. if you ha- if you haven't seen it, there's a film with Timothy Spall in it called The Journey, made in 2016, is absolutely excellent on the negotiations, particularly between McGuinness and Paisley. And if you want an idea of what it was like, watch 71, because that is a blinding film as well. It's about a British soldier who gets uh, stuck out on his own in that environment. It's a brilliant portrayal, I think, of young... I mean... Consider the fact that lots of the soldiers going over there were 18 years old, uh, 18, 19. It's fucking scary. Uh, the situations that they have to do, it's still a legacy within the British Army today. Uh, you call it the thinking moment and the critical moment. And when you can fire at somebody, when you can't, if your mate gets shot and then the gunman runs away, you're not allowed to shoot at them because they're then uh, no longer a threat to you. And all these kind of rules that timed in. Or if we're going to look at it from a slightly down the pub um, comedy moment, the season finale is Derry Girls. I was going to say I didn't want to take away from the levity uh, from the brevity of the moment uh, and and mention the fact that Chris appears to have gone away and dressed up as a Lufthansa pilot and then come back. What are you wearing, dude? A Luftwaffe, which reminds (laughs) me of Miles Downing Fokker over Kent. No, he's definitely cabin crew. (laughs) Chris, what are you wearing? Or who are you wearing? Chris, we can't hear you. You're on mute. He's even got a tie on. It's great. Cabin crew is definitely... He's done his Prince Harry. No, still can't hear you. No, we still can't hear you. (laughs) How much wine has he had? Oh, I love him. We'll come back to what Chris is wearing. Uh, Right, okay. (laughs) While we go right, so why the judges decide what they think uh, is Ireland's greatest moment, uh, we are going to go around the room and find out what everybody would have picked if they couldn't have their own. Uh, I'm... I'm going to go Good Friday Agreement just because it's part of my own personal history as well, remembering all of that shit kicking off. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go with that one. Lockie, if you couldn't have that, which one would you have gone for? Bacon? Bacon's good, isn't it? I, I, I like the early stages towards Republic. Um, oh, but then I do like My Lovely Horse as well. <laughs> um, uh, i got to go with My Lovely Horse running through a field. <laughs> Alina? It's going to be Bacon, isn't it? Oh, yeah, mine's definitely going for the bacon, mate. I'm the biggest meat eater you'll ever meet. So, yeah, Kate and the bacon. You are essentially a T-Rex. You are the the most carnivorous person I've ever met in my life. Um, Dude, I I can't eat any meal of the day. Every meal of the day has to have meat, otherwise it's not worth eating. Mate, having watched you eat that salt beef pastrami thing at that place at Victoria that time, that, that was like a thing of beauty, watching you inhale that. Where you oh. hadn't, where you hadn't had like a New York salt beef thing in so many years, and we found one in London. Oh, don't! You're making me hungry after I've eaten soup. <laughs> Heather, what about you? I'd go with the Good Friday. Yeah, agreement, definitely. Beth, 
besides from the fact that Lockie did pick mine, I was going to say Good Friday Agreement anyway, because it's just such an important moment. And I do, I, I think I was four, three or four, and I can remember my parents watching the stuff on the TV about the Good Friday Agreement. And even then, it burned a hole in my memory that I can't get rid of. Um, so, yeah, Good Friday Agreement as well. I think I was still young enough that my biggest preoccupation was the fact that I'd now be able to get around the Natural History Museum and the dinosaurs without the Irish threatening to blow me up, which had never happened before. <laughs> Clive? I think there's only one person I would give it to, and that must be Heather, because A, she likes Jedward, and secondly, I think that what she put forward, if it weren't for that, there would have been no Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, this is true. Zach? I think you've got to go lucky in the Good Friday Agreement, haven't you? I mean, it's just so important in terms of it's kind of one of those transformative moments um, and the scale of the achievement is incredible. So, yeah, well played, Lockie. Chris, do you have your mic back? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Kate, what about you? Um, I'm, I'm sure it's all very important and everything and the Good Friday Agreement's all, like, really important and that, but... I like the Eurovision Song Contest just because of the effect it had on the rest of the world, really. Excellent. Boom. I've got a vote. I'm well excited. James, what about you? Lockie did do a persuasive and quite strong argument. Um, however, I've got to think what's potentially going to last longer. And I think the invention of bacon is going to last longer at this current moment in the political environment. So bacon. I was waiting for you to say that my lovely horse would endure longer than the <laughs> Would that endure longer than bacon? Yes. And bacon's tastier. Yeah. Bacon will be around forever and ever. I think Chris is trying to tell us that he also agrees with bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is now holding a sign up. Yeah, Chris has gone bacon. Uh, bacon. How much wine has he had? Is that his Why is he dressed up like a Dublin bus conductor? <laughs> Glassy. Oh, how many glasses? Three glasses of white. So he's basically, he's right. He's sending us notes now because he can't work his head. I love it. This is classic, Chris. This is why we love having him in the pub. Brilliant. Okay. Judges. How are you going to do it? Um, yeah. Uh, I want to start off with a, a, a very, very strong honorable mention in that this was my vote for third place, but Marcus pulled rank. Um, and through no numerous other reasons but yeah clive um you were my third because the in from in terms of a social history perspective the progress that has been made from then to now particularly in those past few years as you mentioned it needs to be acknowledged um wasn't really a moment but that i i, I still think you deserve third place um marcus you third <laughs> Yeah, if it wasn't for that, I think he would have just hit it in. In third place, reaching the podium, is my boy Atty, Zach White, the birth of Duke of Wellington. Totally fucking I don't yeah. care. I mean, from an Irish history perspective, Clive is more important, but from a Marcus saying goodbye to his job presence. <laughs> What, how did he pull rank? I'm curious to know. I, I mean, just to put it I didn't go, I'm English. So, <laughs> I don't need to know about I said, it. I said, 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 I said
Well, you know. Sucks them off. <laughs> <laughs> second place. Uh, second place. We we unanimously agreed from for two one. Um, Heather, with um, in terms of like, because in terms of the foundation of the republic, that election and that parliament and what it represented is so crucial. Because you've gone from three decades of violence, arguably, to peace. And that transition to power is cru- crucial for what comes. And as someone else mentioned, you can't have Good Friday without 1932. So 1932 absolutely deserves recognition. So second place, we'll go there. Which means probably that Lockie has won it then, does it? Yes, yeah. so my lovely horse. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so good night to a situation. Lockie knocked out of the park um, right at the end. Uh, Good Friday agreement, I think we've already covered how important it was, but also it was a really epic presentation, and so it's just a real shame that My Lovely Horse doesn't get in there. Um, maybe would have if I wasn't being so sycophantic towards the Duke of Wellington, but hey, that's literally my job. Uh, no, Lockie did an outstanding job on filling in 20-odd years, end of some violence. Unfortunately, still a little hint of it around, um, but yeah, as a, as a single moment in Irish history, and it's something that lots of us, most of us, all of us can relate to, uh, Good Friday Agreement, outstanding choice, uh, very good presentation. Dorman, I'm interested to know, because obviously the last hundred years of Irish history has been really like tumultuous and all the moments have come from that. If you had to pick something pre-20th century, what would you have picked? Um, pre-20th century, probably Act of Union. Um, in terms of what it does to the country and what it represented, um, and what it what led what it led to, because everything that followed it was essentially trying to dismantle that, and everything that came as a result was dismantling the Acts of Union, uh, Home Rule, that, that 1932, then the, the partition, and then I mean the Troubles is a direct descendant of that, so it would have to be the Acts of Union. Cool. I think Chris has his microphone back. Oh, gone again. <laughs> we, I am just going to clarify for our listeners that Chris is, it, we were joking, he's not dressed up as a Nazi. He is, however, does seem to be dressed up like uh, the YMCA air crew uh, stu- air steward. Yeah, I'm really convinced that is Luftwaffe. Because he, he looks very similar to it. in the chat that it's modern Luftwaffe. I'm sure he put that in the chat somewhere. Oh, that makes it okay. No, I don't know what. It's still not as creepy as Kit's head, though, right? No. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nothing is. Can I just say, if we were doing, uh, because lots of this came about over the, if I if I got to do a twentieth century uh, nomination, uh, one that Dorman and I chat about a lot is the siege of Jadutville, uh, the the Irish army uh, defence of the town as peacekeepers. Though they got absolutely shafted by their own government, so it's worthy of its own. Uh, mention is outstanding, but uh, the automatic winner, like the QI buzzer, was meant to be Sergeant Masterson uh, getting the eagle in the Peninsula War. And can you do the quote for me, Dorman? Because I don't want to do the accent. By Jesus, I've got the cuckoo. Thank you. <laughs> so I've just completely sidetracked by the fact. Did you, Chris, just held up a sign saying where he got it from? Bought in a lobster something spree. Oh, but, but that's a celebrity. I mean, I think it was a lobster high street. Bought. In my struggle, this is really great. <laughs> <laughs> the Jews are our miss. A drunk 
<laughs> will hold up signs and everyone else will try to read it. Eight, eight, eight. And then we put it out on an audio <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well done, Lockie. Victory is yours. Oh, thanks. Boom. I think Chris has passed out. And well done, Heather. Second place on your first show. And you have to come back and see if you can do better. Definitely will. Right. Okay. With that, we have finished uh, torturing Dorman for, well, nearly finished torturing Dorman because before we go, I just want to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can't make it stop. There we go. Right. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. So we will be back shortly with another down the pub. Uh, God knows what we'll be talking about. Some people will be here. Some people won't. Uh, Yeah. The end. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 